Hello and welcome to The Price of Everything. I'm your host, Tim Price. Joining us this week is my friend, former colleague, Mike Hollings of Shard Capital. Mike, welcome. Thank you very much. To kick off uh, my career today, what have you done? What, what do you do now? Well, I suppose my career can be divided into two phases. The first 15 years was on what we call the sell side. I um, focused on convertible bonds and worked at various investment banks. Um, and then the second half was more focusing on private client investments. Um, on the buy side. On the buy side. So, um, yeah, that started in about uh, 2003, roughly. Um, and currently, I work at Shard Capital. I am a partner there, and I work as CIO for Mosaic, which is a retail offering we have. But I also advise on sort of strategic ma macro outlook. Okay, you mentioned macro. How would you describe the current macroeconomic environment? In a word, challenging. Um, in more than one word, I think the problem is that central banks now rule the roost, even more than they ever did. Everybody is quite Pavlovian, the market reaction to, to central banks. So it is very challenging. Um, what we've learned, obviously, over the last few years is that it doesn't pay to fight central banks. Sure. The central banks are pretty desperate people and will do pretty desperate things to keep things afloat. So the macro situation for me um, is quite challenging. Well, the, the exogenous risks that could affect macro include you know, political risks and climate risk or whatever. But um, generally speaking, uh, I'd, the way we invest now is much more cautiously, uh, much more defensively, because it won't take much, I don't think, to upset, as we saw in January and February this year, the market reacts quite badly when things don't go the way they're expecting them to go. Wouldn't you say there's a, something of a problem in that there's no such thing as a, a, a risk-free rate anymore or, or a low-risk uh, safe haven asset? Well, there's a risk-free rate. The problem is that the risk-free rate is now, set by... Now be, become negative. Well, it's set by central banks, and yeah. in some cases it's negative. You know, when the market sets the risk-free rate, then at least you can have some sort of faith that, you know, if you take money off risk-free to go into other asset classes, then you understand what, what's involved. When you have a situation where the risk-free rate is set by central banks and it's artificially manipulated down, given that all other risk assets are priced off that risk-free rate, you question whether those assets are correctly priced anyway. I mean, a good example would be um, equities, which, you know, the value of an equity, I would imagine a company is the, the discounted sum of the future projected cash flows. Well, if you discount that at 1%, you'll get a different answer, you discount it at 8%. Mm. So, so no, I don't think you can be confident of any pricing. The, the only thing you can be confident about, briefly, is that central banks will keep the gig on the road as long as they can. But to that point, and you mentioned markets, the way I describe this problem is it's, it's a battle, battle royal between markets and effectively central banks. I, I can't quite tell what the timeline is. Or, you know, firstly, I, I'd like to think the market's going to win out, but I can't say with any degree of certainty how long that process is going to take. Well, the problem is that, um, and you've seen this, I mean, I keep reading things that stagger me, but, um, and I don't have specific, precise numbers, but... Nor do you easily stagger. Nor do I easily stagger, but um, in Japan, for example, it's the central bank went from buying bonds, it now buys ETFs, ETFs that are invested in Japanese equities. So the central bank is now a major owner of Japanese equities, albeit indirectly through ETFs. Yeah. The central bank in Switzerland now buys ETFs and buys direct equity investments. So I'm just wondering, when did the central bank mandate stretch to buying equities? And so 
if we think that central banks will keep printing money and need, the ECB is running out of government bonds to buy. It's buying corporate bonds now. It's depressing. The, when it runs out of corporate bonds, will it start buying equities? It might do. So, you know, why take on central banks when they can pretty much buy anything they want because they can print as much as they want? But there's also a huge degree of moral hazard in this because you mentioned the, the Swiss central bank. These guys are printing money out of nothing and then using it to buy real assets. I know. In any other world, that would be, that would be the equivalent of fraud. You'd be in jail. You'd be in, exactly, you'd be in jail for it. If you're a central banker, you get a get-out-of-jail card free. So, um, so we can joke about it, but it is an issue. And to your point about what, how, how, how long can this go on for, some time, I'd imagine. So, you know, as I said, when, when we talk about how do you invest, one eye is open to the fact that you don't want to challenge central banks and defy them. and But as I think you'd agree, if you're going to invest in equities, just make sure that you're buying equities that represent some sort of putative value. That, you know, going back to Ben Graham, there's a margin, uh, margin of safety. safety. And that, you know, the cash flows are solid, the, the monopolistic situation or something that gives them an edge. I mean, I, I personally own Apple, PA. I yeah. own Apple. Because, Mike, you know, it's... it's Earnings are flatlining. And it's, it's not trading on a particularly high multiple, is it? It's Apple? not. It's got 200 and something billion in cash. Which well, minus the, whatever the European Union is going to take off it. That's weird. 13 billion won't make a dent. Um, but, but at least it's got a, a business that everybody knows, that everybody likes the products, that they're constantly innovating, that actually they could even use that cash balance to go into new businesses, new R&D. I mean, anyway. But that's the kind of business I like yeah. because I feel safe at night that I'm buying a company where, look, if earnings aren't growing at 30%, that's not the, you know, I just want somewhere I can sleep at night. And there are very few places where you can put your money now and sleep safely at night. You've kind of come on to the next question I was going to ask, which is how, how does one sensibly, rationally asset allocate in this kind of an environment? Again, it's, it, it's you know, from when I started 30 plus years ago to now, um, and I don't like doing it, but you have to have an eye to what, what, what a central bank's saying. Because in terms of asset allocation, I think central banks can talk the talk. I'm not really sure they can walk the walk. The, the Fed can threaten that they're going to raise rates. Realistically, I don't think they've got much room to raise rates. I don't think they'll raise in September. They might. But two months before an election, that's very political. So maybe if they raise in December... They could raise by a basis point. They could. They or could. half a basis point. <laughs> or half a basis point. But going back to the allocation, you have to have half an eye out to what they're saying rather than what they're actually going to do. In this kind of market, I, I'm a big believer in understanding how the, how the bigger picture is going to play out and then allocating based on the fact that there are managers out there who are very good in their given space. They could be experts in Vietnamese equities, they could be experts in credit, they could be experts in all And there's a number of funds that I, I invest in where I, I know the managers, I trust them. Again, going back to sleeping at night, they stick to the knitting, they do what's... And you understand why they have a position. And so the portfolio is constructed in such a way that if this piston's firing and this one isn't, or this one's firing and this one isn't, in aggregate, they're going to grind out a positive return. Um, so specifically, I, I buy a number of sort of relative value funds or absolute return funds. Not Would those be hedge funds? No, they're, they're usage funds. 
um, if I'm allowed to plug, um, but um, Jupiter have an absolute return fund that I, I find has been extremely consistent over time. Um, Standard Life has spun off a number of sort of absolute return funds, and you know they does what it says. Because the they team. have a huge global absolute return vehicle, don't 50 they? Fifty odd billion, I think, which kind of gets a little bit too big to manage, I think. But 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 they've spawned sons of guys, yeah. and some of these funds are very good. Um, you know, again, asset allocations. You know, BlackRock Gold in general is a core part of the portfolio. Um, we've got some emerging market equity funds, which are core to the portfolio because we believe in the the demographic story in emerging markets. Um, we've got some positions in, in um, trend-following funds because they sort of dampen volatility in the portfolio. So it, it, I think in this kind of a market, it, to chase returns is a mistake. I think in this sort of market... You need to be cognizant of the risk as much it, as anything. Exactly. It's, it's you know, the old thing about return of rather than turn on capital. Yeah. Um, and and you know, the more markets keep grinding higher, the more cautious I become. You've mentioned BlackRock Gold. Um, what are your thoughts in relation to gold and perhaps silver, the, the, the so-called monetary metals? Yeah, I mean, again, personally, I, I, and this is going to offend you, but I bought gold for six months, but I actually took profits in gold recently. It seems to be hitting a, at 1.1350, and, and it was a bit of a crowded trade, and I'm, I'm waiting, I hope, for some of the froth to come out of the gold market. Longer term, you, I think... It's difficult you, to price, though, isn't it's it? It's difficult to price. It, and, you know, and market timing, and that's... It, that's bad idea. But um, longer term, gold has to be a core part of your portfolio. It just has to be because central banks have said that they will do whatever it takes. I, I can't see the Bank of Japan stepping back, the ECB stepping back, the Bank of England's put the foot on the gas a little bit more, the Fed is on, well, they, they claim they're going to tighten it, and they will. So gold, I think, or, or silver or any platinum, and I own ETFs in silver and platinum, um, these are all things that should be a core part. Of, and you know, the, the more this madness goes on, I think the higher the weighting you want to have to this kind of thing. In a, in a recent interview, we, we spoke with Sean Corrigan, who's a, a notable Austrian school economist. Yeah. Do, do you have any sympathy with the Austrians? I have a huge amount of sympathy for the Austrians. I'm a big fan of Hayek and all the Austrians. Um, the problem, in inverted commas, is that, again, getting back to this sort of central bank orthodoxy, which has gone out the window, you know, back in 08, the Austrian school would have had it, and I have some sympathy for this, that it's sort of storm and drang, and you sort of let markets... They're apparently a great credit shop, storm and drang. Are they? Yeah. But, but let markets reset, let the market, and, and let businesses go bust. And the trouble is that because central banks had overseen such a huge growth in, in the credit bubble, but on balance sheet and off balance sheet, through credit derivatives and all these SPVs, that it was a, an existential crisis. So... Not that I've got much sympathy for central banks, but in 08, I think they had to do what they did. Yeah. But that so was that in 08, but that's, that's, that's eight years ago. No, I know, I know. But now, well, as you know, uh, and um, we, we've discussed this before, but I think global credit's gone up by about close to 60 trillion since 08. Mm. You know? so, so we've actually got more credit in the system. We're even in more vaporous... So with, with that in mind, because so, so, the McKin McKinsey study said it was 57 correct, correct. trillion since, since, since 07. With that in mind, are we in a better or worse situation than we were when Lehman Brothers failed? That's a very good metaphysical and philosophical question. Um, Not to put you on the spot, but we need an answer. I'd say we're in a worse position. Yeah. The, the, the trouble is, you see... This isn't, isn't the issue that... Yeah, you say that the central banks have gone all in, but it, it, I, mean, I don't know if you heard of a guy called Ben Hunt, 
Yes, of course. And I think Epsilon we probably discussed theory. Uh, Epsilon theory. And it's this very is a great, great, great uh, analyst. And one of the things he, he mentions is, is, is narrative, the power of narrative or, or failing narrative. So we, we, we suck us for a good story. And at the moment, everybody believes that everybody believes that central banks have got, have exactly. got everybody's back. Exactly. So the issue, the sort of the metaphysical, to use your phrase, the metaphysical problem is when does everybody stop believing what everyone else thinks? Which I knew that too, I'd be a multi, multi-millionaire. I, 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 don't, I don't want to be but flippant. Does it, but but, but do, doesn't that suggest that there's much more fragility about well, the, the system it, now than there was eight years ago? No, exactly. And that's what I'm saying is that the problem is that the medicine's killing us. But because we don't feel it killing us, everybody goes around their business thinking, oh, you know, what's wrong? You know, I can pay my mortgage, I can buy a new car, I've got my job, everything's fine. Without understanding just the credit bubble that's out there is off the scale. Mm. But if you're not aware of it, and if it's not impacting your daily life, because you and I live and breathe this on a daily basis, so we, we, I think we get it. But 90% of the population, it doesn't really affect them. They hear what the central bank governor says, and they go, Brexit's going to be a disaster. Oh, it wasn't. Oh, well, never mind. And they just get on with their lives. So, so the medicine is killing us, it's, but it's killing us slowly. It's not like somebody comes and cuts your head off with a chainsaw. So how, so how do we get out of the doom loop then? What does it take? I mean, I, I'd like to think it, it takes a popular uprising against central bankers and these guys are, are, are taken to account for well, overstepping their that, mandate. Going back to it, nobody's accountable. Alan Greenspan can fuel the biggest asset bubble we've ever known. Bernanke can continue the but thing. he's still lauded but, as some kind of a god. But, but, but nobody's been indicted. Nobody's yeah. gone to jail. Nobody's, you know... Well, the bankers are still walking free, and you know there's the odd little pyrrhic victory for regulators, but really, uh, how do we? I think what's going to happen next. And I, th I forget who mentioned this. It was one of the letters. It wasn't Ben, but it was one of these people said that the logical thing is actually we need to have credit controls because mm. there's so much money, latent money in the system, just waiting to come back, you know, from reserves that. Uh, banks hold at central banks, that if that money ever came back in the market again, that would be hyperinflationary. Now, we want a bit of inflation, but we don't want hyperinflation. So maybe what you do is you introduce capital controls, you introduce credit controls. Ban cash. Bank, you ban cash. And, and, and I was talking to somebody before lunch, uh, lunch before this meeting, and it's to save capitalism, the irony is to save capitalism. You have to kind of destroy it. We're, we're moving to a communist system. Yeah. Everything is centrally planned. Governments through central banks effectively owning more and more bonds, they're owning equities. We'll end up owning buildings, we'll end up property. If this keeps going, we become a de facto communist state because this, the government controls everything, plans everything, and that's to save. Do you think it's possible we could get some kind of um, benign reset rather than a, 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 a complete blow-up of the system? My little theory, without getting into Monty Python... <laughs> But my theory, the best way to cure this, best, there's no good ways, but best way, might be that all the major central banks get together. Now, if, if the Bank of England said one day, you know what, you know that 800 billion that we own, listen, Treasury, we're writing it off. And the Treasury goes, oh, fantastic. We've got 800 billion to write off the national debt, fantastic. The problem is if you monetize that debt, the pound would collapse. Yeah? But if the ECB, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, the Fed, Bank of China, all one day collectively say, you know what, as a percentage of GDP, we're all going to monetize X. And I come and I go, that's not very good, is it? 
But what am I going to do? Sell the pound against the dollar? Well, no, because the dollar's done it. Sell the pound against the euro? Well, they've done it. Short it against the euro, uh, the yen. In that market, the gold goes through the roof. Mm. But at least these governments have reset. They've cleared the decks without, I think, necessarily precipitating some catastrophic sell-off in currency markets. So there could be a, a more benign, a more benign act. Look, it's a bit of an extreme theory, but um, I'm not the only one talking about. But we're in an extreme place. Central banks monetizing debt. Uh, yeah. they, they monetize the interest on their debt now. Yeah. So the next step is to monetize the debt itself. Last last words. Apparently Taylor Swift's back on the market. I hear rumours. Can you can you confirm those? Well, you know, it's I'm, I'm a discreet. And she said that she likes their boyfriends to be discreet. So I'll just I'll, okay, leave, let's, I'll leave it at that. Let's draw a discreet veil. <laughs> thank you. Mike Hollings of Shard Capital. Thank you very much. Thank you.